make your way to Isaiah chapter 40. Um, I do need to say from the, from the beginning, I feel like I need to apologize. Sorry, Nikki, that was, I accidentally pushed the wrong slide when I was moving my stuff over. So I knew at that moment when the wrong slide showed up, I could feel the anxiety in her because she didn't do anything and it changed. So sorry, my bad. Um, but um, we, we look to um, begin this season of Advent as we look forward to Christ's birth and, and what that means. And if you've never been in a, in a place or in a church that, that has celebrated Advent in this sense, um, Advent simply is the, the arrival of a notable person. So for the church, that's Jesus Christ. So as we spend these four weeks leading up to Christmas, which neatly fits into the month of December for us this year, um, we, we look to his birth and, and as we look to his birth, we, we realize rather quickly that, that his birth, and as we look to it and see what happened, that it's not, the, the birth of our Savior is not what we would have imagined, right? That we wouldn't have planned our Savior to be born as a baby, someone that needed to be cared for, that, that had to grow, that, that was vulnerable, or that, that his birth, if he had to come as a baby, would have been, been in the circumstances that it was. And so even from the outset of just looking at how our Savior, how Christ arrived, it's a wonderful thing to behold. That it's this wonderful event that we look back to to gain our identity. Because apart from the birth of Christ, redemption's not possible. And so we're going we're gonna to spend this time looking at, at some of the traditional themes, the hope, love, joy, peace of Advent, but we're going to look at those kind of in a way that, that we interact within those emotions or those characteristics as we look to Christ. And, and really, how do they change our hearts as we look to Christ on this Advent season? And so we'll look at today, we begin with the hope that we have in our redemption We'll look at the love of our Redeemer. We'll see that we have a joy in our report of what's happening. And then ultimately, we continually have peace throughout our response to Christ's birth. And so, if you will, look at Isaiah 40 with me. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 40. I will just say on the outset that we're going to do a little more flipping than normal. Um, so that might mean that you keep up, or you don't have to, or you can just scroll faster, so we'll go from there. But we're landing ourselves in Isaiah chapter 40, and then looking out from there. So in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, God's Word says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you will pray with me as we ask the Spirit to guide us through our time today. God, we thank you for your truth. God, and I pray that, that even in this season that has so many distractions, that, that through looking at your truth, our hearts would be captivated on your son, Jesus. The, the wonderful gift, 
that we did not deserve, yet you gave. And I just pray that, that as we move forward through this month of celebration, it would be your son that we celebrate most. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so um, you, you might be thinking it's kind of an interesting passage as we look forward to, but what we see in Isaiah chapter 40 is this hope of redemption because it's, it, these are words that were meant to comfort the, the Israelites as they would have been in exile. So this was speaking for, this is answering the questions of someone who is in exile and there's comfort. If you look at these words, there, there's, there's hope, there's comfort in those who are captive these words provide comfort. And you can see that comfort. And so also, we can find comfort in this as we look to the true fulfillment of these words in Christ's birth. And so we can say that we have comfort. We can say that our captivity has ended because of Christ's birth. And that sets the stage for us today. That it sets the stage that we can kind of leap off from Isaiah 40 as we look to Christ's birth, knowing that there is comfort to those who are in captivity. Because if we're honest, all of us are in captivity of a sinful condition that we've inherited all the way back to Adam. And so if we truly understand the magnitude of these words, we have to realize first that there is a necessity of redemption. And if we're honest, the necessity of redemption is something that the world has a problem of understanding. Or not understanding, but acknowledging that, that so often we, we hear and we're bombarded with messages that, that there's really essentially nothing wrong with a person. That there's no cosmic thing, there's no depravity because of sin that we need saving from. We just have to align ourselves in a better posture or be better people and then we're fine. But the reality is we absolutely need redemption. We can't achieve it ourselves. And then the question becomes, so why? Why is redemption a necessity? Why do we have to be saved? And it's because of our sin. Right? The, the short answer is, why do we need redemption? Sin. And the long answer of why do we need redemption? Sin. And if you want to expand that just a little bit to get a truly long answer, it's because we can't do anything about our sin. And that's why we find hope in our redemption, because Christ has come. And if you look all the way back to the beginning, this is what's happening. If you go back to Genesis 3, right? if we look all the way back to Genesis 3, we see that sin had happened. Right? Adam had allowed sin to come in and fracture, and, and you see this curse. Right? You see the curse that God has placed on creation. And so in, in verse 314, we'll just read a couple of these, and, and you'll see what I understand. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your lives. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, shall, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be before your husband, and he shall rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree I will command, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. And so we see this, 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 this curse, this, this magnitude that's not only a curse for the serpent, for the deceiving one, but also for individually Adam, Eve, 
sending that through humanity, but also creation. You can see that everything has been fractured because of sin. And so we have a necessity of redemption because the sin that was present. See, Adam had just allowed sin to enter, fracture all creation, and then out of these words, this curse, we find hope. And it's really interesting because in our understanding, if we're mad at someone, if we're angry at someone, if someone has wronged us in in what we tell them, however colorful language you use or not language, just separating yourself from them, there's never an ounce of hope for that person because we're incapable of love and grace when people don't deserve it apart from God's action and allowing us to do that. But look again at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what we see in that verse, Genesis 3.15, in the middle of a curse, we find hope. That this was the, the very beginning. This was the first glimpse that God had a plan that he would promise someone to come that would offer and provide the redemption that we so necessarily need that we cannot achieve for ourselves. Our own sin, our own depravity from birth inherited to us is the reason we have a need of redemption. And all of humanity has always needed that redemption. There's always been a necessity for redemption. Redemption just simply being saved from our sin. There's never been a person that was born that needed redemption apart from Christ's birth. So we, collectively, all people uniformly have hope and redemption because of Jesus' birth alone. That apart from his birth, you don't have his death. Apart from his birth, we don't have redemption. And apart from that wondrous birth, we're left in a system trying to achieve something that we cannot achieve. And if you just look at the Old Testament, you see exactly what we would still be under. You see that, that people were called to live a certain way, yet they could not keep that standard. And so over and over again, you see people trying to live up to what God has called them and then continually being deceived, continually being entrapped by their temptations and sin with no way out. There was no hope for their own efforts to bring them out. But if you will look differently at the Old Testament, what you see, in a sense, is a long season of Advent, waiting for a hope of a Redeemer. That they're waiting for a hope of a Redeemer. So you can say that this Advent, throughout the entire Old Testament, was that the one who God had promised all the way back from the beginning, and then every single time that God had promised and initiated a new covenant with his people, saying that he was going to be their God, and they were going to be his people, all this time there was a promised one, and they hoped for redemption because they hadn't seen their redemption. They hoped for it, and so by faith they were justified in the hope of redemption, but we are different. We have a hope in our redemption because we have seen Christ, because he has arrived, and that's why we don't say that we hope for redemption. We hope in redemption as we look to the birth of Christ, and it's a necessary redemption. We have to have Christ's action on our behalf, otherwise we're lost to wait from him. God's provision is the only way that we can achieve redemption. And really, achieve is a bad word. It should be receive. Because we were given a gift as we look to Christ's birth, as God fulfilled his promises all the way back from the beginning when sin was first fresh. 
that we have this hope that one would be provided. And it's a necessary redemption. And that's why we can hope, because we've seen Christ. We look at him. He is the visible representation of our hope. And not only is it necessary or a necessity of redemption, we also see that there's completeness of redemption. If you, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 40, you see this when you look at verses 3 and 4. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord. And then, then we see the completeness in the next few lines. It says, Make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. And so when we look back to Isaiah 40 with Genesis 3 in mind, we see that not only is there a necessity of redemption, but that redemption is complete, that it's a total redemption. We see the totality of redemption as we look at these verses. We see the turning around of the barriers holding us in captivity, that God's people were exiled, yet the physical barriers were removed for the redemption. There's really two ways that we can look at this today, and I don't think one's right or wrong. I don't think we can put one on the other, but they both show us the completeness of redemption. Is first, the way to look at this is that literally this is the breaking down of barriers for our redemption, right? It, it makes them, this is just basic geography, and, and some of you have been to the region, right? And some of you have seen the actual topography and understand that, that traveling through the desert is difficult even in our times, much less in their times. And so when we look at this, what, what's happening here is that literally the physical barriers of redemption have been changed. When we see God talking about the straightened path, the lifted valley, the lowered mountain, the leveling of the uneven ground, the smoothing of the rough places into a plain, we see that the physical barriers keeping those in captivity have been erased. We see the ease of travel made possible. And more specifically for us, we see that the, ray, the way of redemption has become clear. And we see that for us as the way of redemption has become easier because it's no longer through our efforts, but it's in Christ alone. So Christ himself is the straight path through the desert. He is the easy way if we would but submit to him. And then secondly, we see that not only is it the, the physical breakdown of the barriers, but we can see that the redemption affects all of creation. If you look at what's happening, if you look at the words that God's saying here, he's saying that everything about creation will be affected by our redemption because everything about creation was affected because of our sin. That, that all creation was affected when sin happened, so all creation will be restored when redemption is completed. Paul says that in Romans eight nineteen through 22. We see that, that in those words that Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that all creation eagerly awaits. That, that, they, that it waits for the arrival of the sons of God. And what that's talking about is that creation is waiting the point where we are finally complete in our redemption so that we have glorified and we're visible in our glorified state. Redemption is now complete and creation waits for that because that is when creation too will be redeemed. There's this completeness of redemption that is seen. And Isaiah 40 points to that. That our redemption is so complete that creation eagerly awaits it. That all of creation awaits it. And so we hope in our redemption because 
It is complete. But not only is it complete, but it's continuing. And so that's kind of one of those crazy things. You could say it's the already not yet understanding of our redemption. So we can say that our redemption is already complete as we look past Christmas to Easter and what Christ has done in his death those years after his birth. And so we can say then that our redemption is complete in some level because we've been justified because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But it's also currently being completed as we live our lives through the power of the Spirit, as the Spirit continually and progressively sanctifies us, creating us more and more into the image of Christ, our redemption is being completed, although it's already complete, and then ultimately it will be finally completed when Christ returns and our physical bodies are redeemed in our glorification for eternity. So we have a complete redemption that we experience now in our justification. Our sin has been paid for. And then as the Spirit works in our lives, as we walk obediently to how God has called us to live, we're progressively sanctified, grown throughout life. And then ultimately, when Christ returns, the last fulfillment of the prophecy or the promise of God, then we too will be fully completed in our redemption as our bodies have been recreated. There's hope in redemption, because it's complete in Christ, but also, ultimately, because it's availability. And if you look at the last part of Isaiah that we read, verse 5, we see that the availability of redemption is for all people, and, every, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's this availability that we see in this redemption. But I want to take you to Luke chapter 1 for a second. As we look at a section of the the birth narrative, you take the whole story as a whole. In in Luke chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter, we see the birth of John the Baptist. And his father, Zechariah, there's this part where he has a prophecy about his son, and what's happening. And so if we look at those verses, we understand then the, the availability of redemption as Zechariah prophesies what John the Baptist is going to do and then looking for the Lord. So we'll just read some of this. Luke chapter 1, we'll read uh, verse 68 through, I don't know, 78 or 79. But, but you'll see what I'm talking about. So in, in Luke 1, verse 68, it says, Blessed be the Lord. Again, this is Zechariah speaking, God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So he's speaking of Jesus there. He says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophets. And now he's speaking to his son that we know, John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. 
And when we look at that prophecy that Zechariah has, we see that that's the fulfillment of God's promise. So what he's drawing us to is that God has said this from the beginning. And Zechariah is saying, even now as we see the birth that's coming of this child, it will happen. And if you look again at verses 77 and, and, and towards the end, we see the availability of salvation. It says what? To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. So there's this availability. There's this knowledge. But this knowledge of salvation points us to the necessity of redemption. That if we have a knowledge that salvation is there, is achieved, is provided, then there has to be a realization that we need it. Otherwise, we don't have that knowledge is worthless. But then what does he say? To give light to those in darkness, verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So there's an availability. Those who are in the darkness will be brought into life that God will not only just provide redemption, but he guides our feet into it, that he calls us to himself. That we're not going to go to God apart from his desires to pull us to himself. That he guides our feet, that he illuminates our awareness of sin. So he's breaking down the barriers to our redemption and making it available through his son who was born that we celebrate this season. And that goes back to that Isaiah 40 verse 5. That the glory of the Lord will be seen. So the glory of the Lord is seen as the fractured relationship has been restored through Christ. That what sin had fractured, a relationship, redemption, has brought restoration to. And we see that in the coming of Christ. And that's why we have a hope in redemption. And that's why we understand that redemption is available to all who God has called to Him. That we don't have to work. We don't have to strive We don't have to achieve. We simply submit to Christ as Lord of our lives. And as Lord, we realize that He determines everything that we do. That if He is indeed the Lord of our life, then we submit to how He has called us to live. That we submit our lives to His truth and what He says we should be known by. And that redemption is available to all who would submit their lives to Christ, who he has called to himself, that has guided their feet to the way of peace. But what happens is, for those of us who live in this time, that really sounds too good to be true. And, And the question might be, even if you've submitted your life to Christ, you might still wrestle with this question. The question then we all ask is, how can I trust him? How can I actually trust God? How can I trust that this redemption is available apart from anything that I do? Because I've gained nothing in my life now apart from working hard and diligent, yet you're saying that for redemption you simply submit. And the reason we can trust Him and the answer to that question, how can I trust, is by looking at the character of God that we've seen on display as Christ comes. Just as Zechariah says that, that He spoke so long ago, yet this is the revelation of that. And we understand that we can trust God because God is a God that always keeps his promises. When we look at the character of God, we see that what he says he will do, he will do. And and, and a lot of times we don't know how to relate to that because we've never met a person, if we're honest, who's actually kept all of their promises. 
And, and for so many of us, the people that we love the most are the ones that have broken the most promises to us. And so when we see that God is a God that keeps his promises, we have nothing to, to, to hold on to to understand how that's possible. That when we say, okay, God, you say that this is our redemption, I don't know anyone that's ever kept their promises. But we see the character of God. We look at the truth that all those years ago, when he was cursing every aspect of his perfect creation because of sin, he gave us hope. And then that hope was continually reassured through the promises that he gave his people, ultimately visible in the birth of his son, Jesus. That we don't have to know a person that's kept his promises because we have a God who already has. That he told the devil long ago that this would happen, and we see this happening, that, that there would be a day that that child that was born in Bethlehem, in conditions that we can't imagine, that we'd actually look down on the people who were in that situation. Because if we're honest, if we saw what would happen at the birth of Christ, we would report them to CPS, right? We would look down on how dare they have a child in that condition, yet that child was a fulfillment of a promise to redeem us. He was the child to fulfill God's provision because when we look forward from the birth of Christ, those 33 years later, when he allowed himself to be nailed on a cross for our redemption, we see that God was keeping his promise that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The redemption was necessary and available through Christ. And it was complete that he was nailed to the cross to achieve our redemption, not because we deserved it, because of the love he had for us. And he was bruised for those three days that he was in the tomb. Just as Genesis 3 said, that he was bruised. But then what happened? Three days later, he walked out and he smashed the head of the serpent on his way out of the tomb, achieving our redemption and life. That he conquered death, he trampled over death, and stepped on the serpent's head on the way out. All to fulfill a promise that God had given us, that we have redemption because God keeps his promises, and it's evident in the son that was born. So for us all, the salvation that he offers freely is free, because if he actually put the price tag on it, none of us would be able to achieve it, yet he offers it because of what his son did to fulfill the promise that he had made, because he has a character that is unchanging. So it's in that child that we look for and we say that we have hope because what he's done. It's in that child that we can say that we have redemption, even though we don't deserve it, even though that we had did nothing to deserve anything of it, and we cannot do anything to keep that. It's his faithfulness that provides that necessary redemption to all people if we would just submit to him. And that's why we can look and get excited at Advent. That's why we can let the hope that we have in our redemption as we look to Christ drown out all the consumeristic desires that we have and simply say, the best gift has been given and it was nothing that we deserved, yet it provided everything that we needed. It was in that child that we have hope and it was in that child that we look to for our redemption and our comfort, and our joy, and our peace. And that's why we celebrate the birth 
of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just I pray that our hearts would be still and captivated by your son Jesus. And I pray that when we look at the birth of your son, God, that we would not take it to be just some story, God, but the reality of a fulfilled promise that you've made to all people. That if we would just submit our lives to your son who you sent in the worst possible conditions so that there's no aspect of our lives that he has not understood, there's no temptation that he has had that we have had differently, yet he was without sin so that he could provide redemption that we needed. God, I pray that the necessity of our redemption would never be lost to us, that we would never understand an aspect of our redemption that is not completed in you. And God, I just pray that, that as we look forward to the rest of this season of Advent, that we would be captivated simply by the birth of your son. And it's in his name we pray, amen.